The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. Again, the title of our sermon this evening, The Sealing of the Saints, Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. And now as we return this evening to the book of Revelation, we continue to work now through the the throne room vision of John, and particularly now the loosing of the seven seals. The Lord Jesus Christ has ascended on the clouds in victory. He has prevailed to take the scroll. He has prevailed to loose its seven seals, and he has begun to do so. He has begun to execute his rule and reign, executing all the authority that has been given to him uh, in the opening of this scroll. In the opening of the first four seals, we see the judgments of God now poured out upon those who dwell on the earth. And with each opened seal, we see a horseman summoned and a directive given. Four seals and four horsemen representing, if you will, the tribulations that characterize these last days. Days in which the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth of God in their unrighteousness. This is a time of tribulation. The four horsemen, these first four seals, representing, if you will, that tribulation which is poured out upon the earth. With the fifth seal now, we hear the cry then of those who have already died in Christ. This is the church of the firstborn whose names are registered in heaven, the spirits of just men made perfect. Uh, These are those who have died for the word of God and have died for the testimony which they held. They're pictured here under the fifth seal. They're pictured under the altar of incense as the prayers of the saints rise into the throne room of God before the throne of God himself. Verse 10. How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? It's a cry from those who have suffered through tribulation and have overcome. It is, in that sense, the cry of the church, the cry of the Lord's people, uh, those who have preceded us uh, to heaven. Their prayer then, that prayer of the saints under the altar in in the heavenly throne room, That prayer is answered then upon the opening of the sixth seal and the return of Jesus Christ in judgment. That sixth seal represents the final day, as it were, the day to which all other temporal judgments merely point to. It's a day in which the cosmos, as it stands under the curse, will be decommissioned, as it were, by the Lord. And the Lord Jesus Christ finally deals in justice with the wicked under the curse. The sixth seal is characterized then by the question that closes the chapter in verse 17. The great day of his wrath has come. Who is able to stand? Who is able to stand before the wrath of the Lamb? That day is coming. Who is able to stand? Who is able to stand before the one from whom, from whose face heaven and earth fled away? The one before whom His eyes are a flame of fire, clothed with a robe, dipped in blood, out of his mouth, going a sharp sword as he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, the one who summons the birds to come and feed upon the flesh of kings, right? Who is able to stand before the wrath of the Lamb? Chapter 7 now represents an interlude, if you will, 
written before the opening of the seventh seal. And this brief interlude, chapter 7, we'll see. We'll see another, just like it, at the end of the third cycle, another interlude. But this interlude is meant to do at least two things, chapter 7. First, it's going to answer that question, who is able to stand? And two, it's meant to encourage and to reassure the church in her time of tribulation. Now first, this chapter 7 interlude before the opening of the seventh seal answers the question, who is able to stand? Well, in verses 1 through 8, we see the church militant. The church militant is able to stand. Verse 3, servants of our God, sealed by God before the judgments are poured out. They will stand through those judgments through the time of tribulation. And in verses 9 through 17, not only do we see the church militant, but we see now the church triumphant. Verse 9, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. And what are they doing? They're standing, (laughs) right? They're standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, palm branches in their hands, proclaiming the salvation of our God. Verse 13, who are these who are standing? Those who have endured through the great tribulation. Those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Those who have the Lamb as their shepherd. So who is it who are able, who are those who are able to stand? Who is able to stand in that day? One, those who are sealed, those who endure the great tribulation, and two, those who are washed, those made white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, the chapter answers that question, who is able to stand? But second, the chapter, chapter 7 interlude is meant to encourage and to reassure God's people, meant to encourage the church. The church is under constant attack. Within and without. We don't always experience that in our own context, but all over the globe, all over the globe, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is under assault, under attack. The church, as it were, is in the midst of a time of tribulation. And in the time of our own distress, the the difficulties that we often face, we may even ask ourselves at times, who is able to stand? Right? You may face a difficulty yourself, face hardship, and you think to yourself, I don't think I can stand. I don't think I can make it through. Who is able to stand? One of the words of Jesus Christ from John 6, 37, the Lord tells us, listen to this, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Who is able to stand? Those given to the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are his are able to stand. Listen to this, the words of Paul from Romans chapter 8, 35. We'll get there very soon. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is no one and no thing. (laughs) That's the short of it. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Absolutely not. Distress, persecution, famine, nakedness or peril or sword? No. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In other words, who is able to stand? 
the sealed are able to stand. God's people are able to stand. Like this morning we were talking about in Romans chapter 8, those who love God, those who are the called ones according to his purpose. Those are the ones who stand. Those are the ones who make it. The church militant on the earth in the midst of her battle, in the midst of her tribulation, and the church triumphant in heaven, crying out from under the altar, Lord, how long? How long? Now with that, we're going to see a picture of both. We're going to see a picture of the church militant, uh, set in battle array, as it were, during her time of tribulation, and we're going to see the church triumphant, uh, the saints in heaven proclaiming the salvation of our God. Uh, we're going to begin tonight with the church militant from Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. The church militant is the church on earth in the midst of her tribulation. Now, I know I'm getting ahead of the questions that many often often have at this point in the text of Revelation concerning the 144,000. We're getting there, so stay with me as we work through this. The identity of the 144,000 we see in verses 5 through 8, and the identity of the multitude related to that in verse 9. For right now, what I want you to note is not their ethnicity, but I want you to note their location. I want to draw your attention to their location. The first group is on earth. The second group is in heaven. I would submit to you that these descriptions represent the same group. We'll talk about that when we get there in a moment, okay? First, I want you to consider the group on earth, the church militant, and that group is sealed. We need to consider the nature of the seal in verses 1 through 3, and then we'll consider the recipients of the seal in verses 5 through 8. Look with me first at the nature of the seal beginning in verse 1. After these things, or after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, John begins verse 1 with, After these things, meta tauta, after this. In using after this, think with me now, in using after this, John is marking the chronology of the visions, but not necessarily a chronology of time, right? He's marking the order of the visions, but not the chronology of actual events. Think with me. In other words, there is a chronological vision or a chronological order to the visions that John saw. John saw this vision, and then John saw this vision. He was given a, a vision of events comprising the sixth seal, and then after this, he was given the vision comprising the interlude of chapter 7. However, the best way by far to understand these four angels in chapter 7 is in their relationship to the four horsemen of chapter 6. These two things, they're actually two ways of depicting the same reality, or two pictures, if you will, of the same event. They are symbolic of the same thing. Four judgments of God being poured out upon the earth. Under the four horsemen in chapter 6, the four horsemen represent are um, responsible for four judgments being poured out upon the earth. Now when we come to the interlude of chapter 7, we see four angels. And what are the four angels doing? They're standing at the four corners of the earth prepared to pour out judgments, those four judgments upon the earth. The four angels really representing the same reality that it was represented by the four horsemen. This is, in essence, if you think about it that way, a bit of a flashback. In fact, you remember in Zechariah chapter 6, when we looked at the Old Testament 
reference for the four horsemen in Zechariah chapter 6. It was a text that informed our understanding of the horsemen. The four horsemen there are actually described as the four winds or the four spirits who go out into all the earth. And so again, there's a connection between the four angels holding back the four winds and the four horsemen, the responsibility of both to pour out judgment upon the earth. So these four angels, then verse one, they stand at the four corners of the earth. Again, another way of saying the entirety of the earth. We say, we use the same language, don't we? The four corners of the earth, meaning the entire globe. This is universal in its scope. He's speaking of the totality of the earth, the entirety of the earth. This is a global event. And what are the four angels doing in verse 1? They hold back the four winds of the earth that bring judgment in the text. Now, we can see how those judgments are represented in the text. They are global, they're universal judgments, and they are judgments meant to harm the earth and the sea and the trees. In comparison with the four horsemen, these angels are holding back the judgments that were also poured out by the four horsemen. Does that make sense? So before the judgments are dispensed, these angels are dispensed, if you will, to hold back the judgments until the servants of our God can be sealed on their foreheads. Before judgments that are unleashed to bring destruction upon the earth. The four winds of judgment here in chapter 7 then parallel to the judgments poured out by the four horsemen. So the interlude then is a brief pause, okay? It steps back to answer the question, who is able to stand? The four horsemen pour out their judgments in chapter 6. The end of chapter 6, who is able to stand? Chapter 7 steps back to answer that question right? So chapter 7 is answering the question, who is able to stand? And it does so first by explaining how they stand through or how they persevere through these judgments. Another angel then comes on the scene, verse 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. Now, regarding the direction that this angel is coming from, Essentially, biblically, uh, and many in the, at the time Scripture was written, many in the first century, would have seen nothing good coming out of the East. <laughs> nothing good ever comes out of the East. Adam and Eve were ex- exiled east of Eden. They were planted east in Eden, east of God. When they were exiled, they were exiled east of Eden. Cain dwelt to the east. Shinar, or Babylon OG, would have been east would have been to the east. Sodom and Gomorrah were east of the Jordan. Those sons of Abraham, who were not sons of promise, but were sons of his concubines, they were all sent to the countries of the east. It was an east wind that blighted the heads of grain in Pharaoh's dream, and so on. If you kept going, for us, it's really the same kind of thing. You go east, it's where foreign things. Take. If you keep going east, you eventually end up in California. We all know, like it's, you go east, nothing good comes out of the east, okay? <laughs> Can anything good come out of the east? <laughs> Those at that time would have certainly said no in answer to that question. We're inclined to say no ourselves. Paganism, idolatry, false religion, atheism, communism, you think about what lies east of us. We're pretty east in our own country, but you go northeast, it starts getting worse, doesn't it? Uh, In any event, in any event, it's from this dead 
idolatrous east that this angel of the living God ascends with help for God's people. Ascends having the seal of the living God. God is sovereign over the globe. Do you see? Over the globe. And he cries with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying to them, do not harm the earth, do not harm the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. The seal reference there in verse 2 is a noun. Uh, it's represented as a thing. Readers would have likely understood this seal to have been a signet ring, a signet ring of a king, someone in authority. We've talked about that ring before, how they put the imprint of their seal in hot wax to, um, to uh, put their authentication on the communication on the letter or to uh, put their authority on that communication. The document was set apart, so to speak, for those who had the authority to read it or authority over it. That signet was used as a mark that guaranteed a covenant, for example. It was a guarantee for Abraham. Circumcision was a seal, a physical mark signifying the righteousness of the faith which Abraham had while yet uncircumcised. That's Romans chapter 4, verse 11. In usage, the same meaning was made evident when a seal was placed upon a person. For example, uh, the Shulamite was to her beloved a seal upon his heart, a seal upon his arm. In other words, she belonged to him, he belonged to her. God the Father is said to have set his seal upon the Son of Man. The Lord Jesus Christ is his only begotten Son. The Corinthians were the seal of Paul's apostleship, all communicating, if you will, authenticity, communicating ownership, responsibility, or authority. And so in verse 2, this angel has a seal he cries out to those four angels who've been given authority to harm the earth and the sea, and this angel with the seal, with authority, says, do not harm until, until. He says, we must first seal the servants. The word there is doulos. It means slaves. We must first seal the slaves of God on their foreheads, and then you may pour out your judgments upon the earth. It's essentially what's going on there in verse 2. Now, everywhere in the New Testament, the people of God are referred to as the doulos of God, the slaves of God. We have absolutely no reason to conclude anything else but that these sealed are those who belong to him, belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ. They are the slaves, the doulos of God. Where else do we see that terminology used in the New Testament? It's everywhere used to describe the church. Okay, These are the slaves of God. Who are the slaves of God? Those, those who have put their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we come to the capstone of the canon, particularly the book of Revelation, and we're using terminology like this, who does that word apply to? It applies to the church. It applies to the servants of God, the slaves of God, those who are blood-bought by the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6, verse 22 but now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. So what's going on here then? In chapter 7, verse 2. These destructive judgments are about to be poured out upon the earth, and God, who is sovereign over these judgments, and God who sovereignly cares for his people, God intervenes. God steps in 
and he delays judgment, not willing that any should perish, but that all of us should come to repentance, not willing that any should be lost, God steps, steps in and delays this judgment so that his people can be sealed. He is faithful to his covenant. God loves his people. We love this church, amen? God loves it far more than we do. <laughs> we love one another. God loves us far more than we love one another. God loves his people. God loves, God loves his church. And what does God do? In her time of tribulation, before the judgments can even begin to be poured out, God intervenes. God intervenes with compassion. God intervenes with love. God intervenes with his long-suffering patience, not willing that any should perish, and he prevents or delays these judgments until his people are cared for. It's not unlike the angel whom he sent through Jerusalem in Ezekiel's time. If you remember that account, the angel put a mark on the foreheads of those who sigh and cry over the abominations done within Jerusalem, and he sends his angel to place a seal on the foreheads of those who groan over the abomination committed in Jerusalem, and today he has sent his seal, so to speak. He has put his seal upon those who groan and sigh over the abominations committed in our own land, in our own time. In other words, he seals Christians. Who does the Lord seal? Who is it who bears the name of God on their foreheads in Revelation 14? Christians. People, the church, God's people, they are protected, they're sealed, they're cared for. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 9, and let's look at that together. Ezekiel chapter 9. Again, what we're doing is we're looking at this interlude in chapter 7, where chapter 7 answers the question, who is able to stand? Who is able to stand? The people of God. We see the people of God displayed in two different from two different perspectives one the church militant on the earth the second the church triumphant in heaven and how is it now that they stand how is it that they were able to stand through the judgments poured out by the four horsemen we're answering that question who is able to stand how did they stand through that period of tribulation god sealed his people god protected and cared for his people look at ezekiel 9 verse 1 then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice saying let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand, one man among them with clothed with linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now, verse 3. The glory of, of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. Even in Ezekiel's time, who do we know those to be? We know those to be those who have placed their faith in God's promised Messiah, uh, those who have received a new heart <laughs> by the Spirit of God. Who are those who sigh and cry over those abominations? Christians, right? <laughs> uh, we can say that. These are uh, saints that belong to the Old Testament church, as it were. Verse 5. To the others, he said in my hearing, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare, spare nor have any pity. Judgment's going to fall, do you see? God is going to protect his people, and then God is going to pour out his judgments. 
Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women. But do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. Then he said to them, defile the temple, fill the courts with the slain, go out. And they went out and killed in the city. The Lord knows how to protect his own, amen? And the Lord cares. Uh, he is compassionate, intervenes to protect his own. Now this, this seal, I'd mentioned the text to you, this seal is further described in Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, verse 1, listen. Then I looked and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him, the same group, 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. Again, who are those who are sealed? God's people. Why are they sealed? That they might endure, that God might preserve them through the period of tribulation. So we see uh, this group on earth at the opening of judgment at the last days. This is a group that is on earth, the church militant, that stands with everyone else who dwells on the earth at the opening of the judgments that are poured out by the four horsemen, the judgments that are poured out, if you will, by the angels, holding back right now the four winds. Who are they? They are the slaves of God. They are his beloved people, blood bought by the lamb. They are those who are sealed by God with his name written on their foreheads. God has placed his own name upon them. Now, we've considered the nature of the seal. It's a seal of ownership. It's a seal of authenticity. It's a seal of loving care. It's a seal of protection. Not that his people will not suffer for their faith. They certainly will. We've been promised suffering. But rather, it's a seal that his people would not be lost to the condemnation or in the condemnation of this poured out upon the earth, poured out upon the Gentiles, as it were. God has interposed to place his seal upon them such that they would not be harmed by the judgments that will harm the rest of the earth and those who dwell there. 2 Timothy 2, verse 19. Listen to this. There are those who have strayed from the faith. Paul says to Timothy, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. The Lord knows those who are his. It's interesting to think about this seal from chapter 7. Incidentally, Satan often counterfeits his own types. And Satan counterfeits his own seal, as it were. Satan places his own seal upon his seed. We'll see that as we work through the book. Uh, what is that seal? If you think about it, it is the number of the beast. The number of man, his number is 666. We'll look more at that seal when we get here, when we get there. But even Satan counterfeits his own seal for the seed of Satan who belonged to him. Is God's seal, let me ask the question in light of that, is God's seal an actual name written upon their foreheads? In other words, is, is God's seal an actual visible mark upon the foreheads of God's people? No. But there are marks that identify them. Right? There are marks that identify the people of God as belonging to God, as blood bought by Jesus Christ. There are marks. We talk about those marks on a regular basis uh, in this church. God knows those who are his. I think the enemy has his own marks in the same way that that mark may not be a physical mark, may not be an, an observable mark to us, but the enemy knows those who are his. 
they have their own marks that mark them as being of their father the devil. In the Lord's interactions uh, with the Pharisees, uh, you're of your father the devil because there are marks that identify those who are uh, his seed, namely that they wanted to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. It may not be an actual mark on their forehead or an actual mark on their right wrist, but it is evident those who are his own. Now, we've considered the nature of the seal. Next, consider with me then the recipients of the seal. The recipients of the seal. We've already defined them as the people of God. All of God's people are sealed through tribulation. God preserves them. Remember the, the words of the Lord in John chapter 6. Not one of them will be lost. Why? Because they're sealed by God. He will raise every single one of them up at the last day. Why? Because they are protected, they're preserved, they're sealed by God. Not a one will be lost. So they are the sealed of God, the people of God, the slaves of God, those who bear the name of God, those who bear the marks of the living God, those who enjoy the blessed protection and the blessed preservation of God under tribulation. And they're further described in verses four through eight. Now, notice how this group, the recipients of the seal, how it's first identified to John. He hears their number, verse four. John says, and I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of Israel were sealed. And John heard verses 5 through 8. You look at the content of those verses, okay? Drop down to chapter 7, verse 9. Meta tauta. After this, then, I looked, and behold, a great multitude. John hears their number, verse 4, chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Who is that? That's the church. That's the people of God. Those are the slaves of God, those who bear the seal of God on their foreheads, right? Those are the people of God. In John's hearing, reference is made to God's people from one perspective, and when John looks, he sees God's people from the perspective of the cross, from the perspective of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In John's hearing, reference is made to the type and when John looks, he sees the antitype. Look at Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. Flip back page. Revelation 5, verse 5. John hears, behold, the lion from the tribe of Judah. And in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, John looks, and behold, a lamb as though it had been slain. You see the connection between the two? John hears one picture, one perspective. He turns and looks, and he sees another perspective of the same thing. He sees the from the different perspective. So I believe these groups, again, represent the very same group of people, the redeemed of God from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. Just as the images of lion and lamb carry two distinct but complementary messages about Christ and his victory, these two images in Revelation chapter 7 enable us to see the church from two perspectives. 
the church militant on earth, presented as it were in battle ray. We're going to talk about the, um, the, um, the nature of those tribal list, that tribal listing there in verses 4 through 8. We'll talk about that next week. And the church triumphant in heaven. The church triumphant, having come out of the great tribulation, having entered her rest. Again, not through a painless rapture, but through a faithful death. They have known hunger, pain, and sorrow and tribulation. They know hunger, pain, sorrow, and tribulation no more. And now before the throne of God in worship. The two groups the same, okay? The two groups the same. Remember, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, in the first cycle in his letters to the churches, just described the Jews in his letter to the church at Smyrna as a synagogue of Satan. He says there, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Who are the true Jews that the Lord has in mind in his letter? The true Jews are those believers in the church at Smyrna. Do you see? Those in Smyrna who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, those who have the faith of Abraham, that's Romans chapter four, those who have been circumcised, not with hands, but without hands, circumcised of heart, Romans chapter two, verse 28. Now notice this group in Revelation chapter seven, verse four. These groups are described as sealed, and we know well that all God's people are sealed. These are ethnic Jewish believers, and ethnic Jewish or ethnic uh, Gentile believers are sealed also. Think about the numbers with me from uh, this description. 12 is a symbolic number representing completion or perfection. 12 squared means really complete. <laughs> totally complete, perfectly complete. You multiply that by 1,000, again, 1,000 represents completion. And what is the 12,000 times 12,000? What is the 144,000 meant to represent the entirety of God's people. The entirety of God's people. The entirety of God's people in one worshiping group. 144,000 in language representing the type. Those believers in the Lord's Messiah, in God's Messiah from the Old Testament. The, those believers of God from the Old Testament and then believers in God, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ from the New Testament. One perspective in terms that sound very Jewish and the other perspective representing the anti-type. We know that the church is full of those from every tribe, people, tongue, and nation. Two perspectives of the very same group of people. We'll be able to look at that more in detail uh, when we get together next time. And again, the language I think that is important as we seek to understand that is this connection between what John hears and what John sees. After these things, he says in chapter 7, verse 1, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. Do not harm the earth to sear the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. Who are the servants of God? I heard, verse 4, I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000. And John is listening, of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Those tribes listed, we'll talk about that list late, uh, next week. After these things, or after this, verse 9, I looked and behold, what does John see? When he turns and he looks, what does John see? He sees a great multitude which no one could number of all, tribe, all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. Brothers and sisters, I would submit to you, this is the reason, one of the reasons, why biblical theology is so important to our understanding of eschatology. The Bible is full of types and shadows, full of types and anti-types. 
The shadow represented in Old Testament in physical, temporal terms. The antitype represented uh, in its covenant fulfillment in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ we see fulfilled in the New Testament, under the New Covenant. The Old Testament, Israel, God's people under the Old Covenant, a physical, temporal expression, if you will, of the kingdom of God. That physical, temporal expression of the kingdom of God finds its fulfillment in what is a very spiritual kingdom made up of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. It's called the church. Those are the people of God. Israel is fulfilled in the church. doesn't mean that the church replaces Israel. The people of God were always those who placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But what's being pictured here in seed form, in physical temporal form, you see an expression of God's kingdom. That expression then fulfilled in the church where we see the true nature of God's kingdom expressed in the the church, if you will, uh, by every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That hermeneutic of promise and fulfillment, extremely important, exceedingly important in understanding our eschatology. And again, with all of these symbols, we see these um, symbols in Revelation that are painted in terms of Old Testament types. Why? Because the Old Testament types find their fulfillment in New Testament revelation, find their fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So there are these connections that are constantly being made in the book, and this is one of them in Revelation chapter 7. That connection between the old covenant people of God and the new covenant people of God, both the same people seen from two different perspectives. That makes sense? If you have questions about that, please feel free to come talk to me. It just becomes really important when we consider uh, interpreting these things correctly. Here's the, the, the encouragement. I'll leave you with this before we come back to this text and move forward next week. Uh, Here's the encouragement uh, to take from this text. Not one is lost. (laughs) Uh, When we've talked about these things before, I remember um, (laughs) we were moving out of dispensationalism and we're working, you know, and teaching and talking and making that slow transition. This church was largely dispensational before. And um, when we would mention, uh, for example, one of the key issues related to that difference is the timing of the rapture or a rapture. And so the, the immediate fear that seems to uh, come from anyone in considering a post-tribulational rapture is, oh, we're going to have to go through the tribulation. We're going to have to go through the tribulation. And um, God's people have always gone through tribulation. Amen. God's people have always endured tribulation. And from the beginning, not one is lost. You may think to yourself, um, you know, I've read the biographies and I've heard the stories of those who went to the stake for their faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not sure I could do it. I'm sure you can't. <laughs> you should be sure that you can't. But in Jesus Christ, you can. Uh, he can. We can do all things through him who strengthens us. The Spirit of God, if you ever face that kind of difficulty, that kind of tribulation, the Spirit of God will preserve you. God is the one who preserves us. We don't preserve ourselves. Not one will be lost. So whatever the difficulty that we face is, whatever the trial or tribulation that comes our way, whatever it is, through faith in Jesus Christ, our faith is a victory that overcomes the world. Through faith in Jesus Christ, um, God is the one who preserves us. He has placed his seal, which we know from Revelation 14 is his very name. He's placed his name upon our foreheads. We are his. Uh, We belong to him, and not one will be lost. 
Jesus Christ assures us from his word, doesn't he? John chapter 6, not one will be lost, except that son of perdition. We know why he was lost. Not one of his will be lost. He will raise us up at the last day, and you can count on it. That's a promise of the living God. So I take great encouragement here. You see in the the cosmic picture, if you will, of of the church age and the, the pouring out of this judgment that takes place over the age of the church, and we ask the question, who is able to stand? Who's able to stand? No one apart from God's help. No one is able to stand. No one can stand before the wrath of the Lamb. But we see some standing. They're standing before the throne of God with palm branches in their hands, singing praises. Who are those who are standing? God's people. How is it possible that they could stand? God has preserved them. Do you see? God is the one who intervened to preserve them, has sealed them with his very name. He's the one who cares for them. He's the one who's poured out compassion upon them. Uh, He's the one who preserves them to the end. We stand because of him. So we, brothers and sisters, must stand in him by faith, (laughs) not turning to the right hand or to the left, but trusting him, especially when the times get tough. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you are the one who preserves us and not we ourselves. Because of your goodness to us, having already delivered up your own son for us, because of your goodness toward us, your compassion toward us, your mercy, your grace toward us, because of the love with which you've loved us, because of all the goodness that you've already poured out upon us, we know, we are assured, Lord, that you are able to keep that which we've committed to you until that day. And we commit ourselves to you, our very lives, knowing that you are faithful. And we love you, Lord, and thank you for that. Thank you for these gracious condescending encouragements from your word to your people uh, to keep persevering in our trials and our difficulties. And Lord, in anticipation of what uh, could very likely be uh, greater and greater degrees of persecution, suffering, and tribulation in the years to come, we know that you're faithful. We know that not one of yours will be lost, that you will preserve them until the end, faithful, and present them faultless before your throne. Uh, We thank you for that precious promise. Hold us fast, we pray. We ourselves feel the tension, Lord, because we are prone to wander. Uh, We are uh, prone, as the hymnist says, to leave the God we love. Hold us fast, Lord. Uh, Keep our steps fixed on the path that you've laid out for us, and help us, Lord, to persevere preserve us we pray we thank you lord for these promises thank you for the person and work of our lord jesus christ who has secured this for us and we look forward to his soon return come quickly we pray in jesus name amen